3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 14th of November. My name is Carnegie and joining me in the studio today is Ivka, Francis and Fung. Good morning everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. How is everyone? Good. <laughs> it's nice to have a full studio. It's morning. so nice to have a full studio. It's been it's been months. It's great. Did anyone do anything exciting this weekend? Attend rallies? It was massive <laughs> on it Sunday. It was so big. Mm. Um, I was just saying to Fung before the show that. Uh, my partner and I left a little bit earlier than the end because we had the baby, so we would miss the crowds on the train home. And so we got to actually see how big it was because we mm-hmm. walked back, and it just didn't end at all, which is so good to see. It was hard to get like a full sense of how big it was when you were there, though you could tell that there were lots of people. And so I really enjoyed that video. I saw on social media yesterday there was obviously drone footage above the crowd, and you could fully get a sense of just how how many people were down. It was amazing to see. It was so cool. I think that um, news was saying like 45,000, which is the biggest one so far, which is great. Really? I, I saw even bigger numbers. Bigger? Yeah. Mm. But it's, I just, I don't even know how one can estimate. That's the thing. That's what I always struggle right? with. Yeah. Hard to know. Mm. Um, but really cool but also of course incredibly depressing to see how many kids were out supporting Mm. um the whole thing and like you know they're literally um out there kind of screaming slogans that are fighting for people not to bomb other children which is very depressing to look at for sure yeah all right let's talk about what's coming up on the show today we're starting by listening to a conversation that I had with Yasmin Abdel-Majid uh, about the latest outbreak of war in Sudan. So this discussion will be played across um, the next couple of weeks. But in this first instalment, we uh, Yasmin gives us some context to this latest conflict and emphasises the importance of imagining a radical future for the Sudanese people. Uh, After that, we'll be speaking with Josephine Langbian, who is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, and uh, she joins us on the show to talk about the High Court's uh, ruling last week um, that uh, they've declared that um, indefinite immigration detention is now unlawful. We will then be speaking with Will Strachey from Victorian Trades Hall about the recent uh, Victorian government changes to the work cover scheme and why Trades Hall is rejecting them and how they can be better. 
Uh, following that, we will be speaking with Geraldine Feller, who is a spokesperson for Unionists for Palestine. Uh, Geraldine has been at the Zim blockade um, since last week and will be talking to us about the action last week as well as protests that are coming up this week. And to finish off the show this morning, we'll be joined by Sanam Wahidi, an Afghan-Australian researcher and human rights expert in gender, peace and security, as well as Afghanistan and Middle Eastern affairs. Sanam is joining us this morning to talk about the recent earthquakes that uh, happened in Afghanistan and the impacts and aftermath of those. We will be right back with the news headlines after this. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. First in the headlines this week is updates uh, as we are bringing you each week on the escalation of a decades-long occupation of Palestine into genocide. The World Health Organization has warned of a dire and perilous situation in Gaza's hospitals. Gaza's two largest hospitals, Al-Shifa and Al-Quds, have both closed due to Israeli attacks, heavy fighting and the besiegement by Israeli forces, which is causing a lack of oxygen, medical supplies and fuel to enter the hospitals. Israeli forces have trapped thousands inside Al-Shifa Hospital and Mohammed Zakut, director of hospitals in Gaza, says about 650 patients, 500 healthcare workers and an estimated 2,500 displaced people remain inside the besieged hospital. The World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said on X, the constant gunfire and bombings in the area have exacerbated the already critical circumstances. Tragically, the number of patient fatalities has increased significantly. The world cannot stand silent while hospitals, which should be safe havens, are transformed into scenes of deaths and devastation and despair. And it's important to note that humanitarian law forbids attacks on medical centres. So the Israeli attacks are in um, opposition to humanitarian law. The International Committee of the Red Cross said in a statement released on Sunday that hostilities taking place in heavily populated urban areas, including around hospitals, endanger the lives of the most vulnerable people like medical staff, patients, premature babies, people with disabilities. The ICRC is gravely concerned by the unsafe conditions under which civilians are evacuating. Men, women and children waving white White flags walk for dozens of kilometres past dead bodies lying on the street and without necessities like food and water. 
the ICRC teams in Gaza and hotline operators received numerous calls from displaced people searching for their family members. It is paramount that members of the same family are not separated during evacuations. While civilians continue to move from the north to the south of Gaza, 100,000 displaced people lack essentials like shelter, food, water and hygiene. The situation is rapidly approaching a humanitarian disaster. This is according to the ICRC. The southern areas is not equipped to cater to the massive number of people arriving with nothing but the clothes they are wearing and the quantity of humanitarian aid coming in is largely insufficient. The ICRC reiterates its call for unimpeded and regular flow of humanitarian assistance. As the number of Palestinians killed in Israeli attacks on Gaza since October 7 passes more than 11,000, more and more Palestinian supporters are protesting around the world. And as we've heard in Australia, we've had big turnouts at the weekly protests. Uh, In Australia, 80 people have been freed from immigration detention since a landmark High Court ruling last Wednesday. On the 8th of December, the High Court ruled that it is unlawful and unconstitutional for the Australian government to detain people indefinitely in immigration detention. According to Professor Jane McAdam, the director of UNSW's Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, indefinite detention has always been arbitrary and unlawful under international law. We welcome the High Court's decision, which will mean that Australia can no longer detain people for years on end. For decades, Australia's approach to detention has been completely out of step with that of other democratic countries. As a result of this significant decision, this will now have to change. And Senmati Verma, the acting legal director of the Human Rights Law Centre, says this has life-changing consequences for people who have been detained for years without knowing when or even if they will be released. There's a lot of questions about what will happen next, including for stateless persons, uh, and it'll be exciting to hear what um, Josephine Langbien says at 7.30. This Sunday on November 12 marked two years since a landmark Victorian Law Reform Commission sexual offences report. This report was shaped by both survivors and sexual assault services, and it outlined ways that courts, policy and support services must respond to victim survivors of sexual violence. Attorney General Jacqueline Symes said at the time this landmark report highlights just how much work there is to do to deliver a justice system that works for victim survivors. It's an enormous job and will work closely with those who know this issue best to get it done. To victim survivors, we hear you. The system must change. This is too important not to act. Survivors and services welcome the government's promise to deliver a 10-year sexual violence strategy by 2022. However, Sexual Assault Services Victoria, the peak body for specialist sexual assault and harmful sexual sexual behaviour services, notes that the plan is now one year late and survivors continue to suffer unnecessarily. For some background, it's estimated that 22% of women in Victoria over 15 have experienced sexual violence uh, and gender diverse and trans uh, people are even more likely to experience sexual violence. In 2022, there were over 6,000 victims of sexual assault recorded in Australia. However, many people do not contact the police. Meanwhile, Victorian specialist sexual assault services are inadequately funded and Catherine Maltzen, the CEO of Sexual Assault Services Victoria, is looking for comprehensive improvements to responses. 
Kathleen says survivors have been incredibly patient waiting for the government, but sexual assault services see the profound harm being done to survivors and we're sick of waiting. We know what needs to be done both to prevent sexual violence and make sure survivors aren't further traumatised when they seek justice. We need Premier Allen's government to keep its word. In the lead-up to the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, the Victorian Specialist sexual assault sector will be campaigning for the Allen government to fully fund and deliver its overdue sexual violence strategy, improve justice outcomes for people impacted by sexual violence, uh, and improve capacity to develop evidence-based and survivor-led models for recovery. Finally, a new report has found that young Australians unsurprisingly want action on housing stability, employment opportunities and climate change. The annual Australian Youth Barometer is developed by the Monash Centre for Youth Policy and Education Practice in the Faculty of Education at Monash University and gauges pressures experienced by young people in Australian society. The comprehensive national study which examined the views of more than 500 young Australians aged 18 to 24 found that 9 in 10 young Australians experienced some level of financial difficulty in the last year. 40% felt that they may not have a comfortable place to live in the next 12 months. 1 in 5 experienced food insecurity and 44% experienced unemployment in the last year. The lead author of the report, Professor Lucas Walsh, said that young people's view of being healthy no longer just relates to physical and mental health, but now also includes financial security and access to housing in a more expansive and holistic understanding. This year's Australian Youth Barometer highlights wide concerns about rising costs of living, housing affordability, insufficient employment. This Co-author of the report, Blake Cutler, said young people are bearing the brunt of the challenges that are making news headlines. We see many young people experiencing anxiety or pessimism, and these impacts are not equal. Young people with disabilities were more likely to report having these feelings. Women and gender diverse people were also more likely than men to report feeling anxious about their safety, their ability to live a happy life, and their ability to cope with everyday tasks in the future. Uh, to end on a more positive note, the report identified that young people are politically engaged, keen to make change, but do focus more on protesting and awareness raising rather than formal politics. Uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to speak with um, Yasmin Abdel Majid, who is a um, Sudanese writer, uh, author, broadcaster, and award winning social advocate. Um, She's been running the website eyesonsudan.net, amplifying amplifying the voices of resistant movements on the ground in Sudan and um, has published five books, including a um, children's nonfiction book called Stand Up and Speak Out Against Racism and an essay collection called Talking About a Revolution. So yesterday I sat down with Yasmin to talk about the latest outbreak of war in Sudan between the SAF and the RSF and the humanitarian crises in regions like Khartoum and Darfur. This is the first part of our discussion, and in this excerpt, Yasmin provides context to this latest conflict and emphasises the importance of imagining a radical future for Sudan and its people. Yasmin, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR today. It's lovely to be able to speak with you. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could start by giving us an outline of recent events that have led to this current war in Sudan. Sure, yeah. So I can 
I can speak to sort of what hap- what's happened this year, but to to make it make sense, I have to take us a few years back. So in 2018, 2019, the Sudanese people sort of rose up against Omar al-Bashir and his regime. And Omar al-Bashir was the dictator for almost about 30 years. And there had been attempts at revolutions before, most notably in 2012, 2013, and since. But it was quite a... a you know, a very strong authoritarian military dictatorship. So, so it was. It wasn't something that was very easy to do. But amazingly, in 2019, the people of Sudan were successful in overthrowing Ahmed al-Bashir. And what then was brought in was a transitional military or a transitional council, essentially, which was part military, part civilian. And the idea was that over the course of two and a half years, this council would set things up for a civilian-led society or government. Now, the military, these two particular generals, Burhan and Himeti, we'll use those two names, they were sort of at the top of this transitional council, and they were meant to, in October 2021, pass over power to the civilians. But when it came time for that to happen, there was a coup and they decided, you know, their their position was, well, actually, we don't we're trying to protect the civilian movement and whatever, like, you know, a bunch of lies where essentially they were not interested in passing power over to the civilians. And and unfortunately, also at this point, the international community found it challenging um, to, to the, the, the international community was like, well, okay, maybe we should put some trust into these generals. They decided to come to an agreement with the generals and said, you know, let's just kind of see what happens. What happened, though, was these two generals, Burhan and Hemeti. Burhan is from, you know, the Sudanese Armed Forces, so the traditional military of the state. And Hemeti runs something called the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, which are essentially a rebranded Janjaweed. And the Janjaweed were effectively responsible for the genocide in Darfur in 2003, around the early 2000s. They, when they were working together against the Sudanese people, against the civilian kind of movement, they were happy to work together. But of course, when you have two people that want a lot of power, once that common enemy is gone, well, then they turn against each other. So what we saw in April 2023, uh, 15th of April 2023, was that sort of that situation blow up. The RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, and the Sudanese Armed Forces began to fight in Khartoum, in the capital city. And that conflict has kind of escalated and uh, spread all across the region. So Khartoum, the capital city, which hadn't really seen this kind of violence since, you know, the turn of the, the 19th century, since the British were in Sudan, it has essentially been destroyed you know that there was shelling from the Sudanese armed forces there was you know gunfire and 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 skirmishes in the streets and and that's kind of in the capital city just recently only over the weekend there were reports that one of the main bridges that connect different parts of the country together was destroyed by the well by who is not certain, but essentially that was one of the main routes for the for the RSF, the militia, to kind of bring uh, resources into Khartoum. And so what we're seeing is like the, the capital city of Sudan has become a massive battleground. And also in the West, in Darfur, you, we've seen the very similar echoes of the kinds of conflict that was underpinning the genocide in the early 2000s happen again. And we've seen thousands, I mean, there have been thousands of recorded deaths. There were 
probably many, many more. We've seen an enormous movement of internally displaced people, millions. Sudan is now the the home to the largest internally displaced population in the world. I mean, hundreds of thousands have fled the country over the last six months. And so we're in a situation now, which is honestly very tragic. Like I'm sort of, I'm reporting all these things. I'm saying all these things in a, in a sort of journalistic manner. But honestly, it's been, it's been an incredibly tragic uh, situation because only a couple of years ago, there was a lot of hope. There was a lot of, um, there was this sense that Sudan could be a, a beacon for, for civilian government, for, for civilian governance, for democracy, for some sort of like, move away from a military dictatorship a move away from the gun being the only way that power is transferred and power is is maintained in this society and now we've seen that kind of return and also i think that there's there's a sense that well nobody nobody cares the international community uh, you know really the main reporting about sudan was when they evacuated foreign citizens and expatriates you know in in april but since then you know despite the fact that there is a, a humanitarian crisis, despite the fact that there are millions of people who are at the, at the point of starvation, despite the fact that there is no help coming in and, and like no incentive for either the Sudanese armed forces or the militia, the RSF, to, to stop fighting. There is very little interest in or very little engagement. And I think that's something that's quite heartbreaking is that there's, there's a sense that nobody, nobody is coming to help and, and from my family that's on the ground, there's a real sense of despair and 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 also a sense of, well, we did everything we possibly could, right? We did everything right. It was a nonviolent resistance movement against the military dictatorship. We did everything we possibly could and then and yet we're still here. Now, before I sound too kind of despairing, there is, you know, the resistance committees that came up in the during the revolution. So the resistance committees are these grassroots movements that that were sort of local um, organizations or local groups of people that turned into these kind of loose structures. They are the sort of beacon of hope. And I think they are Sudan's experiments in, in democracy, in a democracy that doesn't just look like a Western liberal democracy with, you know, voting booths and whatever, but genuine kind of um, what does it look like for, for Sudanese people to lead themselves from the ground? And those kind of groups of people, the resistance committees, are continuing to do work on the ground and it's continuing to be inspiring. They obviously are the very people targeted by the state, are the very people targeted by the militia. So they are often at risk and many have left and many have been killed and so on. So so I think that while while this the situation currently is very depressing and tragic, especially as we are considering, again, maybe another genocide in Darfur, I think there is also... I have to at least have some hope and some optimism that we are seeing, you know, experiments in our own type of governance at the same time while all of this is happening. Thank you so much for providing us with that context. And I wanted to pick up on something that you said, imagining a democracy, a a way of living and being in Sudan that doesn't necessarily look like what um, Western states think democracy is. And I think, you know, that links to what you were saying before, how the international community were at one point supporting these two military generals, despite the warnings of Sudanese people on the ground saying, don't, 
Yeah. Um, Don't so do it. <laughs> that really says something about Western states and where their interest lies and where their so-called concern lies when it comes to helping uh, providing mm. support or assistance to to oppressed peoples in, in different parts of the world. Yeah, definitely. I mean, to build on that, and I, I refer to them as generals, but we prefer to refer to them as belligerents, really, because that's really what they are. I think that, you know, I and many others find the re- the response from the international community quite frustrating, you know, to say the least, because I think that there's this kind of sense that if you do the thing that you've done every time, which is you deal with the belligerents in power, which is you deal with, you give legitimacy to the very people that are responsible for the violence on the streets, you listen to their words instead of looking at their actions, well, then you're going to get the same results. Why would you imagine that Hemeti, who is literally involved in a genocide, why would you imagine that he would change his behavior when there is no incentive for him to? All you have done is provide him legitimacy. And and also, and people might not know this, but that legitimacy started with the EU, right? That legitimacy started with something called the Khartoum process when the EU did wanted to stop migrants from coming to its shores. And so they gave money to the militia. Well, you know, they, they will obviously sort of deny, 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 but effectively the money found its way to the militia because they were like, we want to find a way to stop migrants from, from reaching our borders. So how do we do that? We'll pay groups some money so that they find ways to stop people from coming. Now, what kind of ways, if you give a bunch of, you know, men with guns a bunch of money, what, what kind of ways do you think they're going to do that, right? So from, and this is like the mid 20s 2010, so like 2015, that kind of era, that's when the EU started funding. And so that legitimacy started then. And and so I think that, again, you know, the international community says, well, okay, well, if we want to kind of see a peace process, the belligerents have to be involved. You know, they have to be the ones at the table. But the people that I've talked to have sort of been like, well, you know, the, the resistance committees are a leaderless organization. We don't know who to speak to, whatever. And it's like, well, it's successful partly because it is leaderless and it's actually not leaderless. It just looks different to what you're used to, right? There is actually a different type of leadership and it's maybe flatter and it's maybe, you know, trying to avoid the pitfalls of holding one person up and, and you know, a concentration of power and corruption and all these sorts of things. But rather than imagining something different, I think part of the challenge is when you're dealing with big institutions that operate in one particular way, they find it super difficult to engage in something that may be slightly messy that may be slightly different to what they're used to. But unfortunately, that just means that you're going to end up with the same outcome. And, you know, I was in a conversation yesterday where somebody was making the argument, well, you know, if men with guns is what gives someone legitimacy, then maybe the resistance committees should have picked up arms. And that, I think, is sometimes what critics will say but i but my response is always that would lead to exactly the same outcome and the part of the power of these resistance committees is that they chose to not you know bear arms and yes that is more challenging and yes perhaps that is a more difficult thing to imagine success in a country like sudan without arms but part of what needs to happen in sudan is a political culture shift whereby 
you know, I think we've had 18 attempted coups in Sudan. The language of political change happens through arms and weapons and at the end of a barrel. But if that is going to change, then you do have to be radical. And maybe that radicalism does look like actually not bearing arms. And that also means maybe that radicalism means the international community recognizes that these then are the groups to speak to, the ones who who aren't choosing to bear arms, the ones who are doing things differently. And you know what, maybe I'm being idealistic, but I feel like that I must, you know, that I must, because we have to imagine things being different. And and I you know, I'm sitting here out here in the diaspora, but I take such, you know, I could, I'm just kind of armchair philosophizing, but the inspiration doesn't just come from me. The inspiration comes from seeing what has been possible on the ground, has been seeing, you know, the experiments at the sit-in in 2019, there was this enormous sit-in at the, you know, in Khartoum where they were experimenting with what a different Sudan could look like. And they were studying, you know, past revolutions and they were studying and they were having these robust conversations and imagining a different Sudan beyond tribal and ethnic conflict, beyond armed struggle. They were imagining that, unfortunately, that sit-in ended in a massacre. And so you kind of, you see the tension but for me, I think that imagining is so important. That's actually vital. And and these years have taught me, have brought to life the words of, you know, Black civil rights movement leaders and so on who talked about the power of imagining a better future and, and living as if you are in that better future. Because I think that's what Sudanese people are doing, or trying to at the very least. That was part one of my conversation with Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Part two of this conversation will be played next week on Tuesday Breakfast. You can visit eyesonsudan.net for lists of trusted organisations to donate to, reading lists and many other resources. We'll be back with our interview with Josephine Langbian after these messages. We have a right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. 1% of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. Change has to come. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am. Last week, on Wednesday 8th of November, the High Court ruled that it is unlawful and unconstitutional for the Australian government to detain people indefinitely in immigration detention. 
Josephine Langbian is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre and joins us today to take us through this landmark ruling and what this means for people currently in detention. Thank you for joining us today, Josephine. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Can you please begin by providing us with some context regarding mandatory immigration detention in this country? Of course. Uh, So Australia has a really unusual system in that uh, the government says that any person in Australia without a visa must be detained. And that has led to a a situation over the past um, two decades or, or even longer that um, we've seen people being held in immigration detention for increasingly protracted periods of time. And in 2004, um, the High Court, in a really um, well-known decision uh, called um, Alcatab and and Godwin case, found that it's permissible for the Australian government to continue to hold someone in detention uh, even if there is no time frame or end point to that detention, if there's no pathway to that person's freedom and no real chance that the person will be deported anytime soon, uh, that that was okay. And so as a result of that, um, up until last week, the average period of time that the Australian government has been holding people in immigration detention was up to 708 days. And for some people, uh, the periods of time were were far longer than that. There were uh, over 100 people who had been in immigration detention for longer than five years. Uh, And earlier this year, the Australian government revealed that the longest period of time it had held someone in detention was 16 years. And so um, we, we had this situation where we were just seeing these incredibly protracted periods of time that people were being um, denied their liberty and that obviously has life-changing and and, and life-destroying consequences. Definitely. Um, Can you explain some of these practical realities for people held in uh, immigration detention since then, including the impact on people's physical and and mental well-being? Um, You were saying that some, you know, on average people being held for, um, you know, 700 days, some some people five years and even one person 16 years. So um, what does this do to, uh, yeah, a person's life? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to overstate the kind of impact that, that that has on a person, you know, denying someone their liberty, so any form of detention, you know, taking someone away from their family and, and, and community and, um, and putting them in detention obviously has a, a devastating impact. But when you do that without any sort of time frame or end point, that creates a, a really unique kind of psychological um, pressure on people. And you know, immigration detention is uh, not a nice place to be. These are these are centres that are run by um, private contractors who operate prisons. Um, there's there's excessive um, data and reports and information that shows that. Physical abuse is rife in immigration detention. Uh, Medical care is inadequate. And being in detention for prolonged periods of time can absolutely um, destroy people's mental health. So um, this uh, prolonged detention can be really, really damaging and um, have, in some cases, lifelong consequences. 
Yeah, definitely. So then can you talk to us um, about the High Court's decision last week? Um, it was, you know, rightfully um, celebrated by, by many um, organisations and human rights advocates. So, um, yeah, can you talk us through um, what this actually means? Mm, of course. Um, so the decision last week was um, really significant. The High Court effectively ended indefinite immigration detention in Australia. So it, it overturned, um, it appears to have overturned this two decades old authority that had allowed the government to lock people up for as long as the government wanted to and potentially for a person's whole life. Um, so the High Court uh, ruled last week that it's, it's no longer uh, lawful or, or constitutional for the government to continue to detain a person in circumstances where there's no real prospect um, that, it, that it will be practicable for the government to remove a person from Australia in the reasonably foreseeable future. Now, all of that sounds a bit legalistic, but what that effectively means is that if the reason that a person is in detention is so the government can deport them, but if the government is not actually taking steps um, to affect that deportation, then they cannot simply continue to hold that person forever um, because detention in, in these circumstances is, is unconstitutional. It's beyond the powers of the government. Um, so this is a, a hugely significant decision, as I said. It, it's going to have life-changing consequences for many, many people who've been detained for years without knowing when or, or even if they will ever be released. We talked about this in the news headlines this morning that um, 80 people uh, have been released from detention centres since the High Court's ruling last week. Um, uh, could you please talk about this and, uh, you know, the need for um, support and, mm. um, yeah, support mm -hmm. within the community to um, uh, help these people who've just been released? Mm, absolutely. And so we've seen the government saying just yesterday that um, around 80 people have been released from detention as a result of this decision. And the government has identified uh, a group of around 92 people that it thinks are most directly impacted by this judgment. Um, we suspect that this might be a conservative estimate. We suspect there might be many more people who are affected by the decision, um, but it is good to see that the government is working quickly to release people from detention and they must continue to do so. Um, the government must be doing everything in its power right now to be identifying the people who are currently unlawfully detained and making sure that their liberty is restored. That's, that's urgent and that's essential. Mm. Um, but, of course, the flip side of that is... Um, it's, it's, it's also really essential that people are not simply, um, you know, released from, from these detention centres and, and left on the street with, with no support. Um, it, it's really significant that it's really important that people have both, um, you know, a, a visa, a lawful status to be in the community and access to those essential support services that are going to allow people to, to start to rebuild their lives. Um, being released from an institution is a really difficult um, period of life, a really difficult thing to do, and um, it's essential that the government doesn't set people up for failure. So um, it's really important that people are going to have access to, to services so they have somewhere to live, they have 
access to medical care, they have um, some form of, of income or ability to work. Yeah, for sure. And like you were describing before, uh, the psychological impacts of being detained um, would have such uh, significant impacts on people. And so therefore then just releasing them into community without any sort of support um, or care um, could be just as damaging, I would imagine. That's right. And and this is also a really confusing time, I can imagine, for people. You know, people haven't been um, I, I don't think many people had a lot of, um, I, I think for many people who've been in detention for a long time, there was not, um, there's not a lot of hope left. And um, this case is uh, hugely significant, but it, it all happened very quickly and very suddenly. And um, so things are changing really quickly. And so I think it's really essential that the government is communicating clearly with people and providing that support. Definitely. Um, one last question for you this morning, Josephine. Do we know how the High Court um, came to make this decision? What led to this ruling? Uh, it's a great question. And um, so last week the High Court made orders and it, it made those orders on the spot at the end of the hearing, which is quite unusual for the High Court, but in um, in cases that involve a person's liberty, um, there's, there's obviously a, a sense of um, urgency, but what we don't have is the High Court's full um, written reasons or judgment yet. That will probably take some months to be delivered. So we don't yet have a really comprehensive insight into why the court has made the decision that it has made. Um, but what we do know is that the court has ordered that uh, continuing to detain a person where there's no real prospect that the government will be able to remove them is beyond the constitutional limits of the government's detention powers. And, um, you know, we know that the Constitution says that, that the government can't use detention for punitive purposes. It's not allowed to use immigration detention as a way to punish people or to extend people's sentences. Um, the purpose of that detention has to be to remove someone from Australia. And if the government can't carry out that purpose, then detention needs to end. Mm. Thank you so much for that, Josephine. And we'll be keeping a close eye on uh, both the government as well as the High Court to see um, uh, what happens next with, with this ruling. But for now, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR to talk us through this. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking to Josephine Langbian, Senior Lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. Uh, you can find information on this organisation by going to www.hrlc.org.au. Uh, I think we're going to go to a song now. Jamila Woods is a Chicago-based uh, singer, songwriter and poet who has recently released a new album called Water Made Us and this track is taken from that album and is called Tiny Garden. I put my hand by yours so you know I want to hold it. I say my prayers at night but I know who controls it. Falling hard for you, but I know I don't show it. I take your love for me, but I know I don't own it. 
not gonna be a big production It's not butterflies or fireworks Said it's gonna be a tiny garden But I feed it every day I feed it every day was a bit of the track called Tiny Garden by Jamila Woods. All right, welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Victorian Trades Hall is running a campaign to challenge the recent Victorian government changes to the work cover scheme. Assistant Secretary of the Victorian Trades Hall Council, Will Strzok, is joining us this morning to talk about why the changes aren't good enough and how work cover can be better. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast, Will. Thank you so much. So for listeners who might not be aware, could you talk a little bit about uh, the Victorian government's recent changes to work cover? Well, the changes haven't taken effect yet, but what they're proposing is um, a few things. So the scheme's been in a bit of financial trouble and the government's had to pump in a bit of extra money. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first reason they're saying is that the number of claims is increasing, particularly around mental health issues, and um, the issue that goes with that then is that people who do have mental health issues related to work often then stay on the scheme um, a bit longer because it's harder to get back to work. So what the government is proposing is a couple of things. They're proposing to make it harder to make a claim if you have a mental health issue, and then they're proposing to make it harder for you to stay on the scheme after you've been on the scheme for a couple of years uh, they're essentially going to uh, put some additional tests in around whether or not you can stay on the scheme. So it's at both ends, if you like. The first is around mental health claims, making claims, and then the second part is uh, then once you're, if your claim's been accepted, uh, staying on the scheme uh, after a couple of years if you've been unable to return to work. 
You know, to me, it seems you know it, to go hand in hand that if you do have a workplace injury and you're out of work for a little while, um, it can it will likely have a detrimental effect on your mental health. Why yep. do you, why do you think that this is still such a stigmatized issue, particularly when it comes to the workforce? Look, I think it's becoming less stigmatized, and to be honest, this government's done some good things about that, right? So they had the Royal Commission into Mental Health, and so. There have been some really good things that have happened. Uh, the issue we've got at the moment is that um, stress claims, you know, people putting in claims for overwork and burnout, that's on the rise because, you know, people are being asked to do more for less these days. We know that, for instance, labour productivity has outstripped um, wage growth, so we know that people are doing more for not much more and people are getting stressed as a result of all of that. And... Uh, rather than look at what we say should happen, it is two aspects. First off, prevention. How do we stop people from getting injured in the first place? And then secondly, if they do get onto workers' compensation, how do we support them to get back to work? Because, you know, all the evidence says that if you get back to work, you have much better mental health outcomes. You know, people feel better in themselves um, if they're able to get back to work. So how do we support them to get back to work? We'd say those are the solutions to the problem that they've got in relation to people putting in claims and then staying on the scheme. But instead of that, the government is effectively uh, coming at it from the approach that says they're just going to stop people getting on the scheme and then they're going to try and um, take them off the scheme uh, even if they can't get back to work. Yeah, and one of the ways... um is, you know, with the introduction of a 20% whole person impairment yep. test. Can you tell yep. us a bit about that and why that's harmful? Well, uh, effectively they're saying after you've received your payments for 130 weeks, in order to continue to get compensation payments at the moment, the scheme says you have to show that you're not able to return to work and that that's likely to continue effectively in an ongoing way, right? So there's already a test about whether or not you stay on payments. But what they're proposing to add is a new test, which is that you also have to have this thing called an over 20% whole person impairment. Now, that's the way they gauge that is there's this thick book that says, you know, if you if your finger gets cut off by a machine at work, that's worth a 25% whole person impairment or whatever it is, right? So basically they measure what an injury is worth in terms of your overall body function. The problem with those the test is it's really hard and fast. So it, it's a it's not a very good test. And in fact, the guidebooks that tell doctors how to measure these things actually say they should never be used for, the, for making decisions about compensation. But also, they just don't take account of things like um, different life factors that might make it harder for people to get back to work. Like if English isn't your first language, or you know you're at your 63 years old and we all know it's, you know the ageism is out there which means it's harder to get work then those factors aren't taken account it, it just looks at your body and says you're a collection of parts physical parts or mental health um, parts and uh, that's all you are you're not the rest of your life and we say that kind of thing it's just it's just not right to do that the, the other problem is with like mental health injuries, it's really hard to get to that 20, over 20% whole person impairment in terms of how do you 
of how do we actually legitimately measure what's happening in someone's um, mental health around the degree of impairment, so to speak, in their life. So we say this should not be used as a test to decide whether or not someone's able to get back to work. Well, that's right. It sounds like it's really black and white rather than taking into account intersections yep. and nuance. And Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so ideally, what reforms would you like to see in the work cover scheme? Well, our, um, we've been saying all along we need to do more in the space of prevention. We need to do more around supporting workers and employers to resolve um, workplace issues before they get to the point that someone feels so crappy that they have to put in a work cover claim and that you know, around that mental health stuff. Um, we don't want to go back to the days where people didn't want to report mental health injuries. Um, you know, that's bad. We want to get to a stage where we can talk about them and deal with them. And then um, from our point of view, we say we want better and more intense supports early for people because, again, all the evidence says if you can get treatment early for mental health issues, you have a much better outcome and you're much less likely to stay um, unwell for a long period of time. So we say prevention, early intervention, and then real wraparound support for people in order to get back to work. If it's clear that they can't go back to the job they were doing before, let's get them retrained and let's get them back into work. That they, when they're ready and comfortable in doing that, let's get them back to work. Those are the measures that we'd like to see introduced. It sounds like the reforms that you're advocating for are going to benefit not only the workers but also uh, the workplaces that are hiring them. Yeah. Um, why do you think there's uh, it, it's not more people are not more receptive? Um, look, I, I don't think people fully understand this stuff. I think there's a bit of an attitude that you know once you are injured, you're a little bit on the scrap heap. I know that um, particularly we have an injured workers network um, at Trades Hall. And they feel that way, that, that effectively they become a number in the system that doesn't really care about them and their outcomes and their lives. And we think, um, I mean, that's really bad. Uh, you know, and particularly, I mean, I don't like to talk about it in these ways because the focus for us is on those injured workers. But for employers, we have a workforce crisis at the moment. We actually want to do the things that keep people in real, meaningful, sustainable, you know, good work because that's actually good for business as well. Like I say, it's not the same that I was normally talking, but just from a practical economic standpoint, this is not good. Like, in the long run, we need these people, we need everyone to be able to work to the best of their ability to contribute and to feel like they're, you know, good in themselves. That's good for everyone. It's also good for the economy. <laughs> Again, it's not the frame I'm talking, but it's good for the economy because people are not sitting on other systems, the NDIS or other systems, because they're not able to work. So um, that's why we say prevention, early intervention, wraparound support. Absolutely. And where can listeners find out more about this campaign and sign the petition? Okay, so the petition is on Megaphone. Um, dot org, I think it's dot au, that's us. Yeah. Um, but if you go to uh, weareunion.org.au, so that's the Victorian Trade Law Council website, that should point you in the direction of the campaign that we're running at the moment, which is around getting the government to rethink what they're doing. And so sit down and talk to us um, and to talk to uh, 
you know, business reps as well to talk about how we actually create a workers' compensation scheme that is sustainable in the long run, but that actually delivers what we say it should deliver, which is support for work, injured workers to get back to work. Amazing. Um, as always, it's been great talking to you this morning, Will. Thanks for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. Oh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. So that was Will Strzok from Victorian Trades Hall talking to us about their new campaign to um, help workers and uh, improve the work cover scheme. Um, if you wanted to know more, we will link to the petition as well as uh, the Victorian Trades Hall website in our show notes later today. We are going to go to a track now. Uh, this track is from a Geelong-based artist. It is the new act by local singer-songwriter Gloria Rakesh, uh, going under the moniker Wild Gloriosa. This song is called Joy. Throw my feet up on the couch I'm melting into my thoughts of tomorrow But I don't show that I'm bothered A reminder to let go of the breath that we hold A type of resistance Perfectly green That was Joy by Wild Gloriosa, who is playing at Queenscliff Music Festival, not this weekend, but the one after, if you feel like a trip out of the city.
Dr. Geraldine Feller is a postdoctoral research fellow at Macquarie University in the Department of History and Archaeology, as well as a spokesperson for Unionists for Palestine. Geraldine is on the show this morning to talk about calling on fellow trade unions and workers worldwide to boycott Israel and businesses that are complicit with its apartheid regime. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Geraldine. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, can we start by just talking about uh, Unionists for Palestine? Yeah, absolutely. So Unionists for Palestine is a rank-and-file group um, of trade unionists from all different unions. We have lots of members of the NTU, my own union, the National Tertiary Education Union, uh, but also the ASU, the Australian Services Union, the AMWU, the MUA, pretty much, uh, pretty much every Every union that, that people listening might be a part of um, is, is represented as, as part of Unionists for Palestine. Um, and we formed, so there's a, there's a group in Sydney that, that formed first and then, then we did a couple of weeks ago in response to the brutal um, bombardment of Gaza that's happening right now by, by Israel. Uh, and Unionists for Palestine were at the protest against Zim, the Israeli shipping line, on 8th November last week. Um, can you tell us about Zim and its ties to Israel's genocide in Gaza? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we, we organised the protest last week on Wednesday. Um, and we're, we did that as part of the Block the Boat campaign, which is an international campaign um, against Zim, which is part of the BDS campaign. Um, so Zim is Apartheid Israel's oldest and largest shipping company. They were far, formed in 1945 as part of, or during the British mandate. They actually played an active role in the Nakba, uh, shipping armaments to Zionist militias. And they've continued to play that role uh, as, you know, with, uh, in the service of the Israeli state. So between 2011 and 2014, they shipped close to 20 million tonnes of military and security equipment from the US to Israel. Uh, so they have made it very clear that they back the Israeli state to the hilt, uh, that they back uh, the, the war on Gaza that's, that's currently you know, happening. Um, and in response to that, we've responded to the calls of Palestinian trade unionists who have asked uh, that trade unions boycott Israel and businesses that are complicit. Uh, in the Israeli apartheid state. And I think that's certainly the case that, that Zim is one of those businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And how did the protest go last week? What are some key moments that stand out to you? Look, the protest was really strong last week. Um, we were very lucky to have speakers from the Maritime Union of Australia uh, at the protest, um, supporting uh, the, the Block the Boat campaign, as they have also in Sydney. Uh, people listening might have seen the the, um, the footage of the huge demonstration that happened on Saturday in, in Port Botany. Um, and we also had speakers from the Loud Jew Collective uh, and uh, also from the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, NASA Mushti. Um, and it was a very, very strong protest. Uh, we actually at, at one point took the road uh, and turned around a Zim shipping container uh, which is a really uh, significant political victory for everyone there uh, and showed you know, in no uncertain terms uh, that people were, were very willing to stand up and, and didn't want a, um, a business that's associated with uh, the you know, brutality of the Israeli apartheid state in our ports. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was a very, very positive 
um, very positive protest and, and very effective. Absolutely. Um, I, I saw lots of, uh, you know, clips from it on social media and it, it just looked so uh, big and it looked really organic as well. People seem to really, really care about this issue, which is great. Um, yeah, absolutely. And to see that, you know, the ship was turned around is absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned before, this is an extension of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions or BDS campaign. Um, for listeners who might not know, can you talk a bit about BDS and I think uh, as well just a little bit about how boycotting can be and protesting can actually be effective? Mm, absolutely. So the Boycott, Divest and Sanctions campaign is basically, basically a call from Palestinian civil society uh, and from trade unions. Um, for people to boycott um, businesses that are complicit in the Israeli apartheid regime. Um, And Zim is an example of a business like that. Um, My view is that when BDS is most successful is when we do it collectively. Um, So when, you know, for example, people organise against a company like Zim, you know, uh, in their their workplaces, hold protests together um, to, to make it clear that, you know, that they're in opposition to, to, to Israel and what Israel's doing. Another example of BDS um, is, or, or, or potential BDS campaigns, is the very significant presence of companies that are aligned uh, with Israel, that you know, create weapons that go to Israel uh, on campuses, so on university campuses. Um, this Wednesday, actually, there's a protest at Melbourne Uni uh, against Lockheed Martin, which is a weapons manufacturer uh, that have a very close partnership with with Melbourne University and the students and the staff there uh, have organised a protest Wednesday lunchtime um, at the the Chancery at the Raymond Priestley building. So those are examples, I think, of BDS that can be really, really successful. And there's a a history of these kinds of campaigns. So during um, apartheid in South Africa... And, and this is part of where the inspiration from BDS has come from. There were very, very successful boycott campaigns, uh, often led by trade unions in other countries, uh, to actually put huge pressure on uh, the apartheid state in South Africa. So in Australia, for example, the predecessor for the Maritime Union of Australia, the Waterside Workers' Federation, put a ban on moving uh, weapons to South Africa, but also just cargo to South Africa. Uh, following the Soweto massacre, uh, so they're the kind of actions that we um, take inspiration, or you know, we in, in, in unions for Palestine take inspiration from. Um, yeah, as you've been explaining, you know, unions have a long history of supporting Palestine globally. Um, can you talk a bit more about this and? You know, tell listeners who might be in a union why this is important, because mm-hmm. you know, I, I do know that, for example. Um, the NTU at VU not long ago put out a statement and were met with a lot of resistance and write-ups and certain prominent mm. newspapers about, um, you know, them being anti-Semitic, which is, of course, not anywhere near the sentiment of um, mm. of the statement. So just, yeah, just talk a bit about why, especially in the face of this kind of backlash, it's really important now for unions and workers to support Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. So... I think so. I think unions and workers can play a really, really important role in supporting Palestine. Um, unions uh, have 
you know, I mean, one, the, the kind of most obvious is that this is a way to talk to people um, through your unions, to talk to your workmates about what's going on uh, in, in Palestine. I mean, I think you only have to look at the ABC and the level, you know, the, the really horrendous or lack of coverage of what's happening in Gaza, um, how intense, intensely saturated the media is actually with, with pro-Israel propaganda. Uh, the importance of everyday people talking to one another through their unions in their workplaces about what's actually happening uh, and countering that narrative, I think, is really important. And I think, you know, right now, looking out in the world, like, it's, it's incredible, I think, despite the kind of media blackout uh, on the atrocities in Gaza, how much people are still standing up and, and, and fighting against what's happening. Um, so that, I think that's really important. Um, I think unions have enormous and very significant power. Um, we have the power to, for example, you know, on the ports, as, as has historically happened, stop the movement of cargo. Um, but we also have the power in warehouses to do the same thing, in our universities to, to do similar things and actually, um, you know, interrupt the business as usual, uh, the, the business as usual kind of um, dynamic, which keeps Israel being able to kind of continue on with its atrocities. I think unions and workers are in that position, you know, in, in a very significant position to do that, to interrupt business as usual um, and, and to um, to educate people about, about the reality of what's happening. So for that reason, I think they play a really, really important role um, in any campaign against war and oppression, um, but particularly, you know, in this case around Palestine. Absolutely. Um that's, I just couldn't agree more <laughs> with what you're saying. Um, can you tell us about any ongoing actions and protests that people can get involved in? Absolutely. So the 20th, next, so next Monday, the 20th of November, um, if you want to get involved in Unions for Palestine, come to Trades Hall. So we're having a meeting from 6pm to 7.30pm, an open organising meeting for people to come along, get involved. Um, it's in the loading dock, so not too hard to find. Um and we have a kind of basically a series of um, WhatsApp groups that you can join that's associated with your union. Um, and then through that, get involved in, in what other members of your union are doing, you know, through the union, in workplaces, moving motions, organising actions and protests um, specific to your industry um, or, the, or the broader campaign. Um, so it's that, I think, yeah, if, if, if you're a union member and you're listening to this and you want to get involved, 6pm trades hall next Monday, the 20th, is, is the place to be. Amazing. Geraldine, thank you so much for joining us this morning and talking us through this incredibly important issue. Thanks so much for having me. So that was Dr Geraldine Feller, who is a, a spokesperson for Unionists for Palestine and helped organise the blockade uh, last week on the 8th of November that turned around a Zim uh, ship from the docks. Um, we will link to more information about Geraldine's work in our show notes later today for anyone who does want to get involved. We will be right back after this. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. 
This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. In October, Afghanistan was ravaged by multiple earthquakes of magnitudes up to 6.3 and dozens of aftershocks. The earthquakes caused over 2,000 deaths and left many more without homes. Sanam Wahidi is an Afghan-Australian researcher and human rights expert in gender, peace and security, as well as Afghanistan and Middle Eastern affairs. With extensive experience in the field, Sanam commits her passions and expertise in supporting and advocating for women's rights, access to education and advising Australian foreign policy and international relations. Sanam joins us this morning to talk about the impacts of the earthquakes. Welcome to 3CR, Sanam. Hi there, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, I was hoping we could begin this conversation this morning with you giving our listeners an overview of the earthquakes that struck Afghanistan last month. Yeah, sure. So, unfortunately, last month, um, Afghanistan um, 
Western um, province was hit by three different earthquakes at the same time, all of which were above 5.5 magnitude. Um, the death toll was estimated to be approximately 2,053 people, but of course we're not really sure what the exact numbers are coming out of the rubble and injuries as well. Um, the impacts of the earthquake were confounding on the Afghan community there, as well as the diaspora who have been bearing the brunt of the crisis um, the last few years as well. Um, lately, Afghanistan have been um, subject to a lot of natural disasters, specifically earthquakes, um, with a few happening within recent years that have been having devastating impacts on the people of Afghanistan. Mm. And UN officials have reported that 90% of the deaths were women and children. Sanam, as the vice president of Afghan women's organisation Victoria, I was hoping you can talk to the impacts that these earthquakes and the aftermath have on women and children specifically. Yeah, definitely. I think with most um, crises that do happen, especially um, earthquakes and different forms of political violence, women and children do bear the brunt of that disproportionately. Um, it was estimated by the UN uh, that a vast majority of the uh, casualties and injuries were women and children, and the impacts of this are confounding. Um, women um, and children do have less security um, within households um, and therefore are disproportionately affected by things such as earthquakes. I'm just having a look at the um, reports coming out of the UN saying that 63% of the um, impacted individuals were women and children. And what aid and support is being provided to affected regions and what does this look like under Taliban rule? Um, there have been various aid missions following the um, devastating impacts of the earthquake, um, whether that be support through Australia for UNHCR, um, UN Women, um, and the Australian Minister of Foreign Affairs also set out a um, guideline for different types of appeals that were going through to Afghanistan. Um, but of course, the NGOs, local NGOs, such as the Afghan Women's Organisation in Victoria, have been doing incredible work in sending through necessary items such as tents, blankets, um, food supplies, uh, warmer clothes and things that will support the um, people of Herat through the winter, um, especially because in Afghanistan the winters are quite disproportionately cold and therefore impact um, the civilian population a lot. Um, but, you know, through the, through the Taliban regime, getting aid through the borders and, and negotiating that process can be difficult. But luckily for um, a majority of smaller NGOs, they do have partner or sister organisations on the ground um, that do an excellent job in distributing that aid in an effective manner and one that, of course, is adhering to international guidelines. Mm. And you touched on it before, but I was wondering, for Afghani people not living in Afghanistan, living in other countries, what uh, what are the impacts of those communities and how how is that being felt since these earthquakes? Of course. Well, I mean, I'm sure um, everyone knows of the Afghanistan 
um, crisis that happened in 2021. And following that, the Afghan diaspora have dealt with significant loss and grief and um, bouts of mental health concerns and, of course, as um, the intergenerational conflicts that impact any diaspora community are palpable during crisis. Um, and, of course, after the earthquakes, um, more specifically the most recent earthquakes that have happened in Herat, the diaspora do feel quite helpless um, and deeply affected um, because, of course, they feel as though the Afghan uh, people don't get the support that they need more and the attention that they need. Um, so it's definitely felt across, especially within the Afghan community in Australia and, of course, of various Afghan communities across the world. Pakistan's government recently made a decision to expel more than 1.5 million Afghan refugees and migrants. And since their deadline of October 31st, for refugees to leave Pakistan or face detention, more than 200,000 Afghans have crossed into Afghanistan. Can you comment on the impact that this will have on the situation following the earthquakes? Yeah, I mean, it poses serious protection risks against the refugees, um, specifically given the uh, damage and uh, social unrest, political unrest that is currently in Afghanistan. Um, this is also to please note that a vast majority of those that are being deported or expelled from Pakistan do hold relevant visas or are considered Pakistani nationals um, through their birthrights as well. Um, so it is very, very concerning, um, especially given the um, humanitarian crisis that is happening um, within Afghanistan, but also the treatment of these Afghan refugees by Pakistani officials is deplorable. Um, there aren't many, um, you know, reports and information coming out, but if you do um, have a look through palpable and um, reputable uh, reports, there are devastating impacts that this expulsion are having and it's going to have an even bigger impact on um, Afghanistan, the pressure on the, the economy, the social structures. Uh, it's just yeah, a recipe for disaster, having expelled so many Afghan people through Pakistan's border at, um, in such a short time frame. Mm. And Sanam, can you please tell our listeners what actions they can take to provide aid and care for communities in Afghanistan at this time? Of course, uh, there are so many ways that one can help. I know, you know when we're checking and seeing Christ, different crises that are happening across the world, um, even especially the ones that are currently happening, it can feel quite disheartening and helpless for those in Australia. But there are so many ways that you can support um, the people of Afghanistan or any crisis that hits home to you, and that's through donating to reputable organisations. So, like I mentioned before, the Afghan Women's Organisation are one of many organisations within Australia that provide support and aid to Afghan women and children in Afghanistan, as well as supporting Afghan women and children and families in Australia too, so supporting their settlement journeys and the impacts that disasters such as these have on the wider community. So donations, um, supporting fundraisers and aid initiatives in Afghanistan through local and reputable organisations. Raising awareness is, of course, very important. Raising awareness on the issues that are happening, 
through whether that be social media, holding conversations with people you know, that's very important as well. And also writing to your local MPs and writing to people of um, significant uh, power to voice your concerns, whether that be, you know, the crisis that's happening in Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan's expulsion of Afghan nationals and, and things like that. So donation, raising awareness, writing to your MPs, holding those conversations and providing Afghan people with that space and platform to feel safe as well. It's really important. Mm. Thank you for providing a list of things that our listeners can do to support at this time. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning, but thank you for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, Sanam. Thank you so much. That was Sanam Wahidi talking about the multiple earthquakes that devastated Afghanistan in October and talking us through the impacts on women and children specifically and what actions can be taken to provide aid for Afghan communities. Hi everyone, you're invited to the 2023 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday the 16th of November at Arnie Almathorpe's gathering place, Dadi Munwaro, High Street, Preston. Join MC Shirley Hood for an evening of talks and music, including Kutch Edwards, Amos Roach, Chris Austin and myself, Robbie Thorpe and the band. Thursday the 16th of November, Arnie Almathorpe's gathering place, Dadi Munwaro, from 6pm to 8.30pm. All welcome, see you there. Music from the wetlands on the banks of the Yarra River in Elphington on Sunday the 19th of November is a celebration of music, community and the environment. Music all afternoon featuring local and established artists including Kucha Edwards and Al Sakuma Beats. Food and drinks available, great kids activities and displays from environmental groups. Why not join Havana Palava's Music March from Elphington Park at 11.45am and make a day of it. More details at musicfromthewetlands.com.au Music from the Wetlands is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We've come to the end of our show this morning. A rundown of what we had on the show today. We started off uh, listening to a conversation that Fung had with Yasmin Abul Majid. Um, she's recorded this conversation in three parts. So we started off with part one today where Yasmin talks to us about uh, the war in Sudan and the importance of imagining a radical future for Sudan and its people. For part two, please tune in again to Tuesday Breakfast next week. At 7.30, we spoke with uh, Josephine Langbian, who is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, about um, the recent ruling by the High Court that it is unlawful and unconstitutional for the Australian government to detain people indefinitely in immigration detention. At 7.45, we spoke with Will Strachey, who is the Victorian Trades Hall um, Assistant Secretary, about... Uh, the new proposed changes to work cover and why they're not good enough. 
and how they can be better for workers. At 8 o'clock, we spoke with Dr. Geraldine Feller, who is a spokesperson for Unionists for Palestine. Uh, Geraldine talked to us about the action that they organized against Zim, uh, a shipping company that funds and sends weapons to uh, Israel that supports the genocide ongoing in Palestine. Geraldine also talked about the upcoming um, actions that will be happening this week and next week, so we will link to more information about that in our show notes later today. And we rounded out the show just then talking with Sanam Wahidi, an Afghan-Australian researcher and human rights expert in gender, peace and security. Sanam was talking to us about the earthquakes that recently hit Afghanistan in October and the impacts that were felt uh, throughout the communities uh, in Afghanistan, in the diaspora and what our listeners can do to help. So that was our show today. Join us again next week uh, at the same time, 7am, and stay tuned to breakfast shows for the rest of the week as well. Um, As always, we will be back here next Tuesday. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.